Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Hello and welcome to another week of Green Left Radio brought to you by 3CR, the station that provides a voice for those denied access to the mass media. I'm Chloe and we've also got Jacob here in the studio. Good morning, Jacob. Good morning, Chloe. Now, before we start, I'd like to acknowledge that Green Left Radio is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be. Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty has never been ceded. And we've got a really good show lined up for you today. At 7.10, we'll be playing an interview Jacob did with Indian Labour lawyer Clifton Desario, who's the leader of the Communist Party of India Marxist-Leninist Liberation, one of India's three mass communist parties who has extensive experience representing workers in the fight for their rights often against fierce repression. So um, look forward to that. Um, Clifton Desire will also visit Australia to address the Eco-Socialism 2023 conference. At 7.45, you'll hear an interview I did last night with Anthony Veal, who's a postal worker and union activist in the Victorian CWU branch. And Anthony will be talking to us about the progressive ticket he's running on in the upcoming CEPU election campaign. Then we'll have the activist calendar, followed by a live interview at 8.10 with Yassin from the Sudanese Australian Advocacy Network to give us an update on the crisis in Sudan. But before that, we'll chat about, we'll go into some news headlines. Yeah, so probably the main news story I kind of want to highlight, and this has been reported on Green Left, but there's a bit of a, um, a fight right now happening around public housing. Now, Basically, the state labor governments around the uh, around the world are, are essentially kind of privatizing sort of public housing, um, and of course they're they're also wanting to sort of reconstruct a number of kind of different sort of public housing kind of estates, etc. Now, this is just reporting from Green Left, but in New South Wales, um, a number of public housing tenants are, are being evicted from public um, from public housing estates that are that are facing demolition, and so. Reading this report from Green Left that was um, written by Jim McElroy, Green Left, um, um, one jury person, Caroline Lenner, was is just one of the two remaining public housing tenants in the 17-unit block at Wentworth Avenue, Glebe, and she doesn't want to be forced out. Lena has lived here for in the has lived in the 35-year-old housing commission block near Black Idle Bay for 30 years. Now. The basically, um, public housing activists in response to this, they essentially pro- um, protested the New South Wales Government Land and Housing Corporation Plan on June 7th. And public housing activists laid out their arguments at the media conference about why they proposed the new Labor government's plans to replace the block with private apartments. 
APH spokesperson um, Rachel Evans said Labor should not adopt the former coalition government's policy. And I think you know the other the other the other kind of issue is the fact that um, that you know people are in a sense being evicted um, during a kind of housing crisis. Although, from my understanding, the government is apparently offering kind of some form of alternative accommodation. But this is just sort of like the kind of trend with all all these um, all these um, public of the public housing policies that the government adopts. Like, for example, in Barrack Beacon. Um, they are demolishing um, the, pu- um, the public they've housing. Started, so they, they've started doing it. They've just started. Yesterday. And, mm-hmm. of course, the government's sort of PR spin is, well, we're... We're, we're, we're destroying it, but we're going to be refurbishing it and rebuilding new homes. Um, now the problem with this is, well, firstly, they can, they never guarantee, um, that there's going to be any significant increase in public housing. And sometimes with the reconstruction, they've usually adopted models of mixed development. So a mix of private and public or social, um, housing sort of developments. Or alternatively, they rebuild, um, these houses. And, um, and then they, um, pass on the management to community housing providers, which are just not the same, um, as genuine kind of public housing. So, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the issues is it, it sort of shows the inefficiency of government policy if they're apparently promising to increase public housing, but they can't seem to um, to be able to do, and, um, promise any sort of increase in public housing stock that doesn't involve destroying the existing homes. And of course, there's all sorts of issues, and we ha- we actually covered um, covered this in a Green Left interview. But a lot of public housing is um, is often deliberately rung down, where you know tenants are like. Um, um, petition the state government to implement basic maintenance, etc., and often their requests are not necessarily heard. I remember years ago I went to, um, for the public housing estate that was um, that's near here, or just on Collingwood, like the Collingwood um, Edinburgh Gardens mm-hmm. um, public housing estate. I remember going to a protest that was led by residents who organised themselves to go to the to the to the Department of Housing office, um, which was in, in the state, to basically demand some basic necessities that should have been uh, a foregone conclusion um, because, you know, the role of the Department of Housing is to to actually um, um, provide the maintenance of culture. I mean, public housing tenants at the end, while they pay less than market rate, you know, they are paying the rent and, you know, there's questions raised on whether that rent is actually going towards uh, the maintenance of the, of the properties. Yeah, um, make sure you head down to Port Melbourne to the Barack Beacon estate, the public housing estate there where residents have been forced to move on. And there are some remaining like Margaret Kelly who's remaining staunch and she, she has managed to, uh, you know, get a campaign behind her. Um, and yeah, we do, we do what we're, I mean, I went down there, I think it was last week or the week before and I was speaking to some of the residents that, had been moved on, including a, a young guy who had been living with his grandma. Um, or actually, he hadn't been living with his grandma, but his grandma had lived there since the 80s, and she's since passed away, um, sadly. But, you know, his whole family has lived there, and it's sort of like a legacy. Um, they don't want to move. It's their home. Um, and it is just, you know, Labor is really adding to this housing crisis by tearing down affordable public housing. It's, it's pretty shocking. So, yeah, we urge people to just uh, go down to, to Port Melbourne, Bright Beacon Estate, and, um, yeah, even if you can form a picket line in front of those bulldozers, 
Um, it's pretty amazing. Margaret Kelly is refusing to leave, and she's um, you know really highlighting how important it is to to keep public housing alive. All right. Well, I'll just play a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. Able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM, and we're going to play um, the, this pre-recorded interview with Clifton D. Rosera. One, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the people-powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Recording in progress. First off, I'd like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on stolen land. From where I'm presiding today is the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Today for our Green Left podcast, um, we are interviewing Clifton D. Rosero, who is a le- elected leader of the Communist Party of India, Marxist-Leninist Liberation in India. Clifton has extensive experience as a labour lawyer representing workers in the fight for their rights, and this is often in the context of fierce repression. He has also been involved in winning union representation for Dalit sanitation workers who carry out the extremely hazardous job of manually unlocking sewer pipes in Bangalore. Clifton is also going to be a feature speaker at the upcoming Eco-Socialism 2023 A World Beyond Capitalism conference being hosted by Green Left that is taking place on July 1st to July 2nd in Melbourne at the Victorian Trades Hall. He will be a a feature speaker on the panel titled The Fight for Democracy in India is Modi Fascist, where he will be giving his eyewitness report. Um, So, yeah, we have Clifton here today to have a bit of a, you know, to have a bit of an interview and discussion, you know, around different kind of topics um, related to kind of Indian pol- um, Indian politics. But really, we're wanting to kind of have a discussion with him about, you know, really what is the nature of the Modi government. Um, so, yeah, to start off, um, Clifton, um, in Australia, we recently just had Prime Minister Modi visit where he was, guess, he was met with this glowing reception from sections of the Indian community in Australia, but he was also met with... Uh, a lot of a glowing reception from politicians as well, um, but from both sides of the, of, of the political spectrum within Drea. Now, we've often heard, heard this thing that the international community and the liberal media have described Modi as a reformer that enjoys great popularity within India, but at the same time he is described as a tyrant and is even an outright fascist who has seen a weakening of democratic institutions. And I guess what we, I guess, Clifton, I want to hear sort of. From your perspective, can you give us a bit of background on Modi's rise to power in 2014? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, this um, the response that one is talking about, of course, the recent Australia experience is quite interesting. Now there is some amount of information coming out 
on the manner in which that entire program was actually organized, the manner in which the crowd, uh, at least uh, from what I've given to understand, uh, a stadium which was not fully, not full, but the manner in which the crowd was actually orchestrated over there. So some seem, some bit of information seems to be coming on that. And that in a way also, you know, uh, the entire megalomania of the man kind of, you know, put, uh, it kind of comes out in, in that entire, uh, that entire kind of program that they organize. Now, I mean, I think, you know, there is no consistency at this point in time in terms of how the, how the international order actually looks at Modi. If you look at it from a time frame point of view. Now, 20 years ago, he was a persona non grata who was not even allowed to visit some of the countries given the role that he played um, uh, in the in, in the genocide that took place in uh, the state of Gujarat, of which he was the chief minister. But 20 years later, now he's been heralded as the boss. I think as the uh, as the uh, uh, the Australian uh, premier seems to have introduced him. I think uh, the, the, there there is also a political and economic rationale to this entire shift. Uh, I think worldwide we're seeing a rightward shift, and this is in the context of uh, a global capitalism, which uh, which is uh, where capital is in a deep deep uh, crisis but is also on an offensive uh, so when you when you see the the kind of fascism that uh, that we are seeing in india you also it's mirrored by a rightward shift in several other countries and generally i think this kind of a uh, economy this uh, capitalism in crisis it's germane ground for this kind of uh, regimes to to come up and of course then for these regimes to prop up each other so the I think in this kind of an international uh, economic situation to expect um, any kind of opposition to Modi I think uh, or any other authoritarian uh, or majoritarian leader I think is not possible. So the, there's obviously going to be collaboration. There's always there's obviously going to be legitimization. And from the Australian point of view, I think uh, that relationship has been growing for some time. The manner in which the governments kind of uh, came together to ensure that you know Adani gets a, a contract for coal mining. In Australia, uh, which was facilitated by the Australian government, and of course Modi then uh, ensured that the kind of funds that was required for that project was given to Adani from the banks. So this collaboration and legitimization by the international order is really not, you know, out of the ordinary. Now coming to coming to Modi, I think you know one needs to understand Modi's ascent to power. It's essential to understand the uh, Hindu supremacist organization called the RSS the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, which is the national volunteer organization. Uh, formed in 1925, it has a particular vision of this uh, of, of India, which is completely contrary to what, uh, at that point in time, the freedom fighters were fighting for. And of course, now, which is completely contrary to what the constitution stands for. So this organization, you know, has been mobilizing it for the last 100 years in various ways to try and uh, you know establish its its uh, its uh, its notion of what this country should be which is primarily a hindu majoritarian state now modi comes from those tables he joined that uh, basically the rss uh, as these local branches which runs in various areas and villages where uh, which basically are indoctrination camps now he as a young as a young boy of 8 years old was part of those camps continued to be associated with the rss Became a full timer with the with the RSS uh, uh, sometime in the 1960s, late 1960s, and there grew in the RSS itself. And of course, his skills, his organization skills, is uh, is flair for rhetoric, and of course, his flair for uh, inflammatory anti uh, anti Muslim, anti Christian kind of uh, you know uh, kind of speeches is something that helped him progress in the RSS. 
somewhere in 2001 he was then uh, basically from rss which is the which is the the mother organization as you can say uh, which has several fronts the bjp or the bharatiya janata party is the political front of the rss now rss controls more or less everything that's done you know in terms of the policies that the bjp undertakes the kind of uh, decisions it makes on and so forth and very important positions of the bjp are held by people who are from the rss so the rss parachuted the modi to gujarat in, as the chief minister in 2001 and what we see after that of course you know something that the the gujarat the, the godra incident where you had this absolutely horrific train fire where 59 hindus died who were coming back from uttar pradesh basically that was basically coming back from some kind you know some kind of can you you can say this you know a kind of a, hindu political program in in uttar pradesh so these 59 people die and what follows is absolute mayhem the pogrom in gujarat where uh, officially the government says you know that some 1169 people died but unofficial records say that more than 2000 people predominantly muslims were killed village after village there was pillage there was plunder there was rape and i think you would have recently uh, read Uh, that one of the most gruesome cases was this gang rape of this uh, woman called Bilkis Banu, which also there were several uh, there were children and women who were also killed in that incident, and they actually got convicted. This is part of the 2002 uh, uh, pogrom. But the state government and the central government came together and actually have released them premature release of these convicted rapists and murderers. So that's the kind of you know incident that took place over there. after that of course you know like i said in the beginning modi did come in for some bit of flack in the uh, from the international order he was not allowed to fly to the us if i remember correctly and to his to his uh, uh, and it's the corporates who basically came to his uh, to his aid and uh, the person who kind of really orchestrated this entire support from the capitalist lobby was gautam adani who tried to create that kind of legitimization for uh, for modi so you then have uh, the following year election taking place and modi and bjp coming back with a thumping majority and what then follows is a series of pro corporate policies pro corporate laws you look at uh, social expenditure is particularly on health and expense and uh, and education dipping and you also have increased caste atrocities and of course uh, a very very uh, you know very vicious a uh, communal polarization the othering of the muslims and the christians that take place in fact that actually marks the entire reign of uh, of of modi and that continues you know till 2014 so from 2002 to 2014 modi basically consolidates his entire hold over the bjp by being the you know uh, the undisputed leader of the bjp in gujarat and slowly then transforming to the national uh, to the national plane and just to you know, even for us to understand how uh, modi came to power in 2014 so basically it was within the bjp he created a situation where it was inevitable that he would be the prime minister prime ministerial candidate that every other uh, person who was capable was sidelined that's the kind of you know uh, kind of role that he played at that point but there are other also uh, objective kind of uh, you know uh, causes for uh, for bjp's ascent to power and modi becoming the prime minister firstly at that point in 2014 it was 10 years of uh, a congress led uh, uh, government coalition government which uh, it, at the end of which there was an economic downturn and of course it was a regime that was marred by corruption so you remember that there were these massive anti corruption 
uh, rallies that had broken out around the country, which basically delegitimized the Congress party completely. And the media played a very, very big role in that. And of course, the RSS mobilized its entire cadre in those entire protests. So Congress lost its position as the, nat- the natural leader of the ruling classes. So they were looking for an option, for an alternative. What better alternative than Modi who displayed over the 10 years that he was the chief minister that he would do anything for the, uh, for the corporates. And you also then had the middle class, which had this, you know, kind of clamoring for this, um, for this very strong leader, you know, this very offhand people would say, yeah, yeah, India needs a dictator now. I remember the, you know, those conversations at that time. So all of these issues, you know, all of these came together and capitulated, uh, catapulted um, Modi to the central stage and the prime ministership of this nation. Yeah, that's. A, I think you've given a very kind of good, a good sort of um, overview. I guess a rise to power, and I guess I want to kind of hear a bit more, a bit more of a, I guess, a summary in general. I guess because now there is starting to be criticism of Modi within the international community. I mean, even when he visited, there was a certain level of kind of criticism, um, especially from mainstream sort of um, human rights organisations. And I guess what can you tell us about you know in terms of the contemporary, like today, we obviously know about. Modi's history, um, as you sort of covered there, but what about his current sort of track record on human rights and democracy, which I guess he's been increasingly being described as an autocratic right-wing Hindi chauvinist government, um, which ha- threatens very much to overturn um, India's foundation as a secular republic. Yeah, actually, I think, you know, one of the reason I also gave a bit of a background is what really needs to understand his trajectory to, 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 you know, place in context where he is today. So basically, you have Modi's rise, which is the persona, which is very authoritarian, but there's an ideology, which is Hindutva. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's these two that kind of, uh, you know, sustained his power, uh, sustained his power as a chief minister and brought him to the center. I think here, you know, the, 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 there's a very important thing that we need to understand. Uh, if you look at the entire, the freedom struggle of our country, uh, to, throughout the British, the colonial past, we, gen- we normally say, you know, that, uh, Democracy perhaps is the biggest gain that we got from the freedom struggle. Because hitherto it was before the colonial past came, of course, you know, it was feudal, it was, you know, uh, ruler, you had rulers, etc. But so the democracy, you know, as a, as a, as a concept was something that you gain from the freedom struggle. It's something that we cherish, you know, uh, in terms of the, as the legacy of our freedom struggle. Now the RSS does not feel the same way because the RSS does not agree with this kind of a democracy. And Modi obviously, from those tables does not do. Now, what do you mean by democracy? You know, when we, when we speak about a democracy, you generally say yeah. democracy means that you have regular elections. Uh, you have, you know, every, uh, yeah. uh, basically all sections of society are treated equally. You would also talk about freedom of speech and expression, the freedom to, to organize, the freedom to, to protest. You would also talk about, you know, an independent media and you would talk about a judiciary, which is there to, uh, to to ensure that you know that the 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 executive stays within uh, the four corners of the constitution. Now that's our general understanding. But in the Indian context, you also need to understand that somebody like uh, uh, B.R. Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, who is the architect of the Indian constitution, came from a from an oppressed community, from a marginalized community. He was a Dalit himself, who faced serious oppressions in his life, and then when he uh, through his sheer grit, determination, and struggle. He came to occupy a very important space in Indian politics, even at that time, during the freedom struggle. So when the time came, you know, as to what our country should be once we are free, the task of, of 
of designing that document, what we know as the constitution today, was given to, uh, to Dr. B. R. Ambedkar. Now, he had a very interesting thing, thing to say from his own, you know, his own social position. And of course, you know, the kind of amazing knowledge that he gathered through his life. He said that, you know, there are certain conditions that are precedent for any working, uh, for any democracy, for a working democracy. One would be that there cannot be inequality, social or economic in society for a democracy to succeed. Secondly, you would need a, you would need an opposition, you know, an opposition which is strong, which can hold the other other powers in uh, accountable. You'd also need equality in law. You'll need what you call constitutional morality. Basically, that the constitution occupies center place and we all abide by the constitution and its values. He warned at that time itself, they cannot be the tyranny of the majority over the minority. And this he meant not just in the religious sense, this he meant also in the caste sense, that, you know, you cannot have the tyranny of the dominant caste over the over the, uh, over the the uh, other caste. He also said that you need a public conscience for a public, for a functional democracy, which means that you are affected as an individual, as a citizen, as a resident of this country, by any injustice that you see around you. Now, but what do you have today? Today, you have, you have the BJP, which has come to power, which basically espouses the ideology of the of the RSS, makes a mockery of the constitution at any given point in time. I'm not sure if you had occasion to see the recent uh, inauguration of the new parliament building in, in Delhi. It was just a few days back, which basically became the spectacle, a complete spectacle. It was almost like the coronation of a king. So the constitution... The entire notion of, you know, of separation of powers, of secularism, of the, of the will of the people, etc. Everything was cast aside in this just one act. Where, where you had religious leaders, you had the Swamiji's, you know, basically, uh, pundits walking around in parliament, doing homas, pujas, so on and so forth, and literally crowning Modi as the king. I mean, that's how we would look at it. The other thing that we're seeing now is that the basic constitutional values, whether it's secularism, federalism, etc., every single thing is under attack. Now, India practices a very different form of secularism. It's not like the American form of secularism or even the French form of secularism, which is a strict separation. Here, it is an equal treatment of all religions. But today, Hindu majoritarianism is common sense. Hindu majoritarianism is common sense in politics. It is the it is what is pushed through by the RSS and the and the Modi government. So when you have that kind of a situation, any kind of a dissent, especially ideological dissent, is completely clamped down upon. So you have uh, draconian laws, which, you know, where basically you can throw a person into jail, and that person will have to prove that, you know, that there is no prima facie case against them for them to even get bail. So you're going to languish in jail for months or for years on end. So you have some of the brightest minds of our country, young minds of our country, who are part of various struggles, including the anti, you know, the communal citizenship law struggles that took place over here, who are languishing in jail even till today. So uh, basically any dissent, any dissent is going to be is clamped down upon. You also have a situation where uh, so-called institutions of, you know, that uh, public agencies, whether it's the police, whether it's the, uh, you know, your tax authorities, your enforcement directorate, etc., each of which is again deployed against, uh, against uh, political opponents. And you also have uh, uh, the unprecedented communal polarization. I mean, I can't tell you, sometimes one starts to wonder, you know, what it means to be a Muslim. How do you live as a Muslim in this country? Even the constant, the constant demonization, the constant everyday attack 
on every single aspect of Muslim life and livelihood. And that is the kind of polarization that we are seeing. And what alongside that, you also have a privatization of violence. So the the RSS has several organizations and uh, that it has spawned, some of which are ultra-violent, you know, and you have these organizations taking law into their hands. So, for instance, you had lynchings of Muslims across the country. You have situations where on Sundays where Christians are gathered for their prayers, for their mass, you'll have a bunch of, you know, these Hindu supremacist uh, organizations barging in, saying that you cannot pray over there, that you're converting uh, Hindus to Christianity, beating them up. And then the police, of course, will come and arrest the pastors or the priests, as it were. There's no action taken against the supremacists in that sense. So you have this literally a collapse of, you know, of how you would understand a functional democracy to be. Now, the media, the media basically parrots. It's not just parroting what the what the uh, the Hindutva line it basically is pushing the Hindutva line. It's communalizing people. It's creating divisions in society. So if you have an incident where, you know, say, I'll give you a small example. The past uh, violence against women is a very serious problem uh, in the country. So if there is a, 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 there's a violence against women, say there's a rape, murder, where the perpetrator is a Muslim, that, that particular crime will become national news. And the identity of the perpetrator, the Muslim identity of the perpetrators, what will be, uh, it will be drummed up over and over again. So as to create a, you know, a kind of an impression that all Muslims are rapists and murderers. But at the same time, they would be, you know, murders and rapes by other communities. But that just, you know, slips. So you have the media that's playing this entire, situ- uh, this kind of a role. And the judiciary has not played the role of defending, you know, being the sentinel of constitutional values and human rights and the fundamental rights of people. So this, it, it is a matter of concern. And of, I mean, this may paint a very bleak picture, but the fact remains that even in each of these realms, of, you know, of or each of these institutions, you do have a fight back as well. You have people who are on the streets who are fighting. So there is that pushback that is happening. But overall, the the ultimate desire appears to be to undo any sense of constitutional morality uh, to, un- uh, to, to make redundant any constitutional value that exists uh, at this point in time. That is the scale of attack that is. Um, yeah, and I guess your organ, in, in saying everything you're saying about, uh, about the Modi government and its kind of track record on human rights, I mean, your, your organization, the CPIML, um, Communist Party of India, Marxist Leninist Liberation, um, and we've also seen other sections of the left have even made, made this argument, although maybe more internationally, but there's, but the Modi BJP government has very much been increasingly described as fascist. And I guess, why do you, I guess, argue, um, that this is the case? And, um, can you give more, and you can even give a bit more detail on the broader political role, which I think you've covered actually quite a bit, but in relation to, to this, why is very much the, why is Modi, why does the Modi BJP government, um, being, is, is in a sense fascist? Yeah, I, I see, I mean, you know, again, there are two points I'd like to make here. One is, you know, whether you call it fascist or not, the point is that these elements of, of its rule is something that is acknowledged. Each of these elements is something, no one has any dispute on that. You know that, okay, this is the manner in which this particular regime is playing itself out. It's attack on society, it's attack on the constitution, it's attack, you know, on, on, on the secular fabric, 
on all uh, uh, institutions of de- of accountability and democracy everyone except this what but some 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 uh, organizations some parties are reluctant to say that this amounts to fascism i would imagine you know that's also because uh, if you if you were to look at uh, look at it uh, you know historically as a you know as a reactionary ideologically ideological political trend where capitalism is in crisis the traditional way in which we understand fascism say in the 1920s and 30s you can't wait for that for that to replay itself today obviously fascism has different uh, has different features in different governments in different countries it will have its own kind of you know local peculiarities now if, for us what we are saying is you put all of this together and what you have is fascism in india you put all of these features together which i just described and inevitably that is the indian brand of fascism you cannot i mean to say that only if the 1920s and 30s the nazi or the mussolini kind of fascism the way we understood it only that is fascism i think that may be erroneous but having said that i i think you know it's okay you call it what you want but the point remains that this is the challenge that we have before us the point remains that we have to accept one thing that this is not business as usual this is not another party of the ruling class to say that okay the congress is also a party of the ruling class the bjp is also a party is you know is 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 of the ruling class i think that's where we cannot make the mistake there is a substantial difference over here this is a party which is backed by an ideology which is hindutva this is a party that has a that has an ideological basis it has a ideological fountainhead in the rss it's backed by private militia groups who will do will not think twice to take law into their hands to kill people to plunder to do anything at all this is a party that has a, that that has actively spoken out against the constitution and talks about replacing the constitution so there's several aspects of this of this regime which set it out from you know other ruling class regimes like say that of the congress so we are saying that this you know this unabashed crony capitalism this uh, kind of a subservience to to you know with uh, to imperialism aggressive uh, aggressive majoritarianism the dismantling of the constitution relentless attacks on dissent relentless attacks on the on the minorities and relentless attacks on the working class all of this together you know is the indian brand of fascism and i guess um as you can't kind of describe you know the you've described the kind of autocratic kind of nature of um the modi government and the fact um obviously one of the one of the most important things as well is the fact that there's always been there is as you kind of alluded to before there is resistance to this um to the modi bjp government and i guess what can you tell us i guess about some of this resistance um um by by the oppressed and workers against against the bjp government including probably one of the most recent things that um is obviously been dominating um the headlines in indian politics has been the recent protests led by um female wrestlers who are demanding the arrest of the president of the wrestling federation of india um who they allege has um sexually harassed seven female wrestlers over more than a decade and of course one of the i guess my probably one of the insane things to sort of look um you know from an outsider sort of perspective looking at that um it is quite insane to even think that um you'd have a you'd have a ruling political party basically openly kind of defend someone who has been accused in a, a position of power openly um you know who has sexually harassed um women so i guess what you can comment about you know some of that resistance that has been happening in response against the bjp government yeah i guess basically the uh, i think one of the 
distinctive features of any regime which is populist, uh, sense of authoritarianism, is that um, it speaks on behalf of the people. It says, I know what you want. I know what is necessary. You know what is what is required by the people. It'll speak to the people, but it speaks for the people. That's the that's the essence. Now, Modi especially has that. You know, it's a, it's a sense of arrogance. It's all of that. You know, this entire intellect, uh, this ideological arrogance, plus uh, this you know, having political power. So it's almost you feel you're you know invincible. So the in this it also means that you're not going to listen to people. But I think the people have been speaking for a long time now. There have been several protests. I think after 2014, when when Modi came to power, the kind of uh, uh, you know the kind of paralysis that uh, that was there in the minds, it's it's all lifted now. So whether it is students protesting across the country on various issues, including the new education uh, policy, whether it's landless laborers protesting, whether it's Adivasis. Uh, uh, the the original inhabitants of this country protesting against various uh, various projects. You're seeing this. There is now rising resistance across the country. And perhaps I think you know one of the the, the most remarkable fights came from the the farmers who for one year stood outside. You know, basically occupied all the borders of Delhi. It was literally an encirclement encirclement of Delhi that took place where more than three four lakh were of farmers uh, from the country went set up. Their, you know, their sheds across around uh, around Delhi, demanding that the uh, Union government, the Modi government, uh, uh, withdraw the three anti-farmer laws that it had passed. You, you follow that, right, Jacob? You, you've seen that uh, that entire struggle, which basically was more than three lakh people de- who went set, just lived outside Delhi, saying, "Till you withdraw that law, we are not going to go back." More than 800 farmers died in that protest. Died of cold. Died of heat died of, you know, some various other ailments, various things, you know, because they were living there, more than three, four lakh farmers living there with their family saying, till you withdraw the laws, we're not going to go back. 800 of them martyred. And finally, the Modi government had to give in. It had to give in and those laws had to be withdrawn. And I'd say that that's one of, the, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a political activist in, in, in this country, it's one of the most inspiring struggles that one has seen. We also saw workers fight back when when Modi announced the the lockdown. You know, the lockdown during COVID was announced within four hours. Basically, he appeared on TV and said, after four hours, no one can go anywhere. You, no one can come out of the house for the next two weeks. You just have to stay there. It's a complete lockdown. The entire country went into lockdown. But workers who didn't have food to eat, workers who were desperate to get back to the houses, took to the streets. There were protests that took place in 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 Modi's own state in Gujarat, in the city called Surat. They were rioting that took place over there, and of course the work, the police used heavy force to crush that entire resistance. So you also saw, even in the middle of this COVID lockdown, workers standing up and fighting. I must also tell you that uh, the Modi government has also, uh, you know, it's not these are not labor law reforms. It's basically restructured labor law to make it pro-capital. It's basically going to take workers back to you know to to a situation where basic rights are going to be denied to them. Now these, it's in the form of four labor codes. The Modi government has still today, it's passed those labor codes in parliament. It has still not been able to put those codes into, uh, into force because the workers have been protesting left, right and center saying we will not accept it. And then of course, you know, now you have the struggle of the wrestlers. It's, it's a matter of, you know, it's really, it's, uh, it's, uh, 
it, it's very inspiring to see these uh, these wrestlers who are all Olympic. You know, some of them are Olympic uh, medal winners. They brought great uh, sporting glory uh, uh, to the country, and uh, who have, they filed complaints previously, saying that you know, see this this man, you know, this this uh, the chief of this uh, wrestling federation has sexually harassed seven people over the past ten years. One of them, in fact, uh, is a minor is a minor girl, and despite that, the government does not take any action against them. They have a protest. They actually go to the Supreme Court. And after they go to the Supreme Court, two FIRs have been filed against this man, this man, but he's still not been arrested. Here, I think what we're seeing is that, you know, it's this is not the first time where we're seeing uh, somebody from the ruling party, from the BJP being accused of rape and being protected. We've also seen the BJP give tickets to uh, uh, to people who've been, who have been accused of terror acts, like Sargya Thakurian, who's now sitting in parliament. So their hubris is such that they will not bow down. So they are, they are, the, the, the government has taken the stand that whatever you do, we're not going to take action. You go to court, FIR, uh, the Supreme Court will direct us, we will register an FIR. Beyond that, we're not going to take action. But these wrestlers, I think, have really stuck to their guns. A remarkable mobilization is now taking place around it, where student organizations women organizations, various other political parties have all gone and expressed their solidarity. Yesterday, I must tell you that, you know, uh, there were protests in even in across the country. There's a, a series of protests that have been planned on third as well. So up to fifth, various groups, are the, basically across the country now, the joint uh, trade union, basically the central trade unions, which has a coordination committee. These are the biggest trade unions in the country. Or the joint committee of these trade unions have issued a call that all trade unions should support these wrestlers and go on, uh, and go on protest. The uh, uh, farmers have their own coordination committee across the country. Their organization has given a call for protests between uh, third to uh, third to fifth. Student organizations have also given a call that they are all in support of these of these wrestlers and they are also going in protest. So now again, we are seeing a mass surge of protests against the inaction, not inaction, the protection that the Modi government is giving to this man. Last time I must tell you, all of these protests are taking place. And the uh, the new parliament house was, uh, the building was inaugurated on 28th of May. On that day, uh, these wrestlers said that they're going to have a big protest. They were brutally beaten up and arrested. And cases have been filed against them. While the Modi government invited the perpetrator of the sexual harassment to the inauguration of the new parliament house. So there's a picture now, a photo of this man, Bridgebushan, saying standing right in front of the new parliament house in this white, white <laughs> outfit of his, while the corresponding picture is of these wrestlers all being arrested. Right. Well, thanks for that, um, Clifton. Um, we can con- we'll go and conclude, I guess, conclude this um, this interview. But I guess, do you have like any kind of final comments that you would like to make, um, especially ahead of? Um, the, the eco-socialism conference where you'll be um, speaking at, that you'll be speaking at? Uh, see, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, basically the challenge across the, the globe, I think, is when we say that democracy is in, is, you know, is in, is in a crisis, democracy is at peril. Uh, our fights uh, as a party, you know, our understanding is the fight is not for a status quo ante. It's not to go back to the kind of democracy that existed, which itself was inadequate. I think for us, the question is also how do we fight and how do we get to a point where a proletarian democracy actually becomes a reality? Those are the paths that we need to look for. So, for instance, uh, the kind of struggles that are happening even in our country, which are very, very inspirational. 
so the fight against uh, uh, modi or the you know this kind of a fascist kind of regime is not against an individual it's against an ideology so that doesn't only mean you know that it's it's a fight for communal harmony it's a fight for annihilation of caste it's a it's a question of class struggle it's a fight against crony capitalism it's a fight for dismantling patriarchy so on and so forth so i would imagine that 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 is the imagine you know that is something that we all need to bear in mind in our struggles you know wherever we we are fighting these kinds of uh, regimes All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Clifton. And yeah, well, I think we're all going to looking forward to hearing you speak at um, the Eco Eco Social 2023, a World Beyond Capitalism conference. Um, Clifton D. Rosero will be speaking on the panel: the fight for democracy in India is Modi fascist. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for five dollars a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM, and we're just listening to an interview with Clifton D. Rosero, who is going to be speaking at the upcoming EcoSocial 2023 conference on July 1 to July 2 in Melbourne, and he'll be speaking on the fight for democracy in India and on a whole host of other sessions. So uh, I'll just go play a quick um, announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? We'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au. We love a good book. Right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and we're going to take a, break, a bit of a break from some interviews to play a song, Miracle, "Miraculous Activist" by Combat Wombat. Concentrate the lab, racks of bombs, we make penetrate the map and freak 
You're just listening to Miraculous Activists by Combat Wombat. And you're going to be hearing uh, an interview we did with Anthony Veal, who's a postal worker and union activist. Enjoy. I am joined by Anthony Veal, a postal worker and unionist in the Victorian CWU branch. Anthony will be talking to us about the progressive ticket they'll be running in the upcoming CEPU election campaign, uh, contesting the current Victorian positions within their union, the Communications Workers' Union. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Uh, thank you, Chloe. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you. Anthony, just to start off, can you tell us about Union Strong, Union Active, uh, why you formed the group, and what are some of the things the group stands for? Uh, thanks, Chloe. Well, We've been an activist group for a few years now, about four or five years. We've, we came about uh, because of some massive changes that happened uh, in our workplace. I think just around COVID, if you can remember, we had this alternative delivery model where your mail was coming every second day to your house 
and parcels were getting banked up and people's parcels were going everywhere and uh, people were tracking them. They, they were supposed to go to Sydney, but it ended up going to Perth and Darwin and Adelaide and back up to Sydney. Um, yeah, so well, a lot of changes made there, uh, such big changes. They wanted to restructure our workplace outside of our EBA and a secret deal was made behind our backs and they call it the MO, the ADM, the alternative delivery model. And the name of the deal was a memorandum of understanding. And the workers had no say in that memorandum of understanding. And in that agreement, the aim was to get rid of 25% of staff, which is shocking. And what they did to, they started with that. They took 50% of the posties off their round mm. and made it the 50% that stayed there had to deliver two rounds instead of one. So they did one day, one round one day, then another round the next day, then came back and did their other round again. And that alternated through the week. The other 50% of staff, 25% of those went into vans to deliver parcels every day. And the other 25% had no job designation. They called them floaters. So they were just floating around being used here, there, everywhere, which stressed them out. And a lot of them left. At the end of the day, about 15% of the staff actually ended up leaving. It was quite terrible. So from that, we had a basic group of activists. We found a few more uh, other people that were upset about it and wanted to do something about this MOU. And we got together. We called ourselves Pissed Off Posties Get United Now. And we started attending all the meetings with the union and trying to force their hand to tell us what was going on and trying to encourage the union to please organise their members. Because when they were making these deals... What they were doing is separating all the workplaces. Every meeting that they had with a work group was marked in commercial confidence, so we couldn't share the information between each other. So it was quite um, – everybody was disillusioned. Nobody knew what was going on. There was confusion everywhere. And the only way we could get some order was actually encourage people to turn up to union meetings and get involved. We weren't getting anywhere by attending these meetings and encouraging the union, and elections have come up. So we decided to contest the ele- election. And our pop gang group has evolved into another group called uh, Union Active, Union Strong, which is we had registered as a, um, a registered organisation so we could have a bank account and get online and raise funds and and uh, start contesting this election, which elections aren't easy, and especially in the post. They made the rules so hard for us. It's a national election, and in Victoria, we're the only ones contesting the election. And everybody's quite upset because a lot of these deals have been made behind their backs. Nobody's had any say and can't do anything about it. The union's not helping them. That's why we're here. That's why we're contesting the election. Well, it sounds really exciting, Anthony. It sounds like postal workers were facing a, a very hostile time in their workplace. So we're, we're glad that you're you're running. Would you be able to tell us about some of the candidates that are running We've had a pretty strong team of mates. That pop gun group was uh, really tight, and we stuck together through thick and thin. It was very hard, and we had a lot, lot of arguments together, and uh, and a lot of fun together, but which made us very tight. And we worked together quite well. And we are a quite diverse group. We are, have all different talents in in different areas. I'm running for secretary, and there are three other organisers. They're the main leadership group of the union, and one of the organisers is Terry Costello. Terry. Is an old comrade. One of the things that uh, the union is really lacking, and the reason why it's gone this way, is uh, political ide- ideology. There's virtually none. 
And, uh, you know, especially in some union factions, even in the Labor Party, they have mottos like left wing, right wing, chicken wing. You know, they don't care. Wherever the deal they think is the best deal, they'll go with it. And that's what our union is like now. They don't care about any political ideology. Whatever's the best deal at the time, we're taking it. So we've got Terry online. Terry is an old comrade. He's been around the traps for many years. Look, just a couple of uh, weeks ago, he was at May Day playing the guitar there for everybody and singing the old songs and keeping the troops entertained. So he's really there. He's going to be president, hopefully president as well, and he'll be leading the charge in the political ideology of the group. And, and he's also uh, a registered accountant and has a master's degree in that as well. So he's pretty good at keeping people in line and uh, and really following the rules and hopefully keeping the rules in that political ideological way. Enzo is another staunch comrade, um, shop steward in HSR, fought many battles, and the current user union actually uses him to fight the battles for him. But the last time, he was fighting for them, and he got into trouble, and the union wouldn't back him up. He was uh, given a dis- disciplinary action and uh, actually asked to move, uh, I think it's about 30 kilometres away to another uh, workplace, get out of his work group, and we weren't going to take that lorry down. The union wasn't going to defend him, so we had to defend him ourselves, and we won the case and got him back to his workplace. But he's a staunch fighter. He's in there for the fight, and he's committed to change and also has strong political ideology. When we were, before the Pop Gun Group was founded, we were looking for people to be with us to stand up and fight against this nasty MOU that was going on. And one person stood out. We saw her submission to the, the government, in the Australia Post review, and it was a really strong submission, and this person really, really had the spunk and the fight in them to, um, you know, we knew we need that person on our side. So I chased that person up, and her name was uh, Sam Kamiri, and she is a deputy shop steward in HSR at one of the mail centres and uh, postal centres, and uh, yeah, she really has a lot of fight in her, and uh, really on the team with us, and uh, she's there to help out. With the election campaign, it is really hard being a rank-and-file team. Um, other teams, like the incumbent team, they have lots of money, lots and lots of money backing them up. Uh, they have millions of dollars behind them. They have lots of deep political connections, and they have lots of resources. And we're just rank-and-file. We have a postie's wage, and uh, we had to come together and make this. The only way we can campaign to our members is through the mail. We can't use email or telephone numbers. We have to mail out physical articles to their addresses. And that costs money to get things printed, get things designed, and also postage. And we've done the first one, and we got that done really well. But we could only do that because we're a really good, diverse team, where Sam had design skills and friends in the printing industry, which helped us out. And Terry had really good computer skills as well and organisational skills, getting us together. And uh, Aaron Enzo and I just ran around and doing all the backup work and keeping everybody together. It was just a, a great team, and we made it happen. And that's our, our leadership team. We, we seem to work together as a team, and we make stuff happen. And one of the candidates you mentioned, Terry Costello, running for branch president, I think he was a 3CR presenter as well. When is the election being held, and how can people get involved and help out? Well, the election's actually happening now. It started on the 1st of June and it ends on the 30th of June, right in the, in the guts of it. Um, people can help out. Well, 
they can help by uh, giving us some money in our um, GoFundMe account. We still have another reminder mail out to go out. That has to go out next week, and we're still getting that together and uh, organising that. Another one, they could speak to their postie. Everybody should know their postie, <laughs> really. It's so important, our job on the line. And the postie does so much for the community, and it's a really, a really solid job. It keeps the country together. Everybody should know their postie and talk to your postie and ask them if they're in the union and ask them if they're going to vote in this union and vote for reform in this union to change their union, to rebuild their union. One of the things that's really let me down with this union, I've, I've been in there for 38 years and I've just slowly seen union membership go down. And it's, it's not only our union, a lot of unions membership is going down, but ours is really going down at a rapid rate. And that's really breaking my heart. And I, I didn't know it was so bad until I started the campaign and, and, you know, finding out and talking to as many posties as I could and finding out about many delivery centers where they haven't even got a shop steward. And members are ringing me up and saying, I've been in the union for 25 years and I've just resigned from the union because I felt it, there's no benefit in it for me. It's really breaking my heart and really I want to, you know, bring it back to what it was supposed to be, give the union some purpose. You know, with my team of leaders, my organizers, our aim is the organisers will only have one job, and that is to organise the members. Really, that's what workers' rights are about and leftism is all about, being organised, working as a collective. And you can't do it if you're not organised. If you're not organised, you're a rabble, you're on your own, and you're easily picked out and, you know, led in the wrong direction. It's organise, organise, organise. It is sad what's happened to the union movement. I mean, really under capitalism, workers have really, or they really feel alienated. They don't really have a say in how their workplaces are run. And the union, um, even in the, the, you know, especially in the postal industry, it used to be much stronger when you look back 10, 20 years. Um, my dad was a postal worker and he was part of that union. And I remember him telling me that workers were actually encouraged to join their union and be active. Mm-hmm. Um, but now yes. that membership is down and, you know, workers are scared to join. They're probably being intimidated uh, for whatever reason. Maybe you could just um, expand on, you know, why things have changed so much and describe your experience of rebuilding the union, which is also part of the CEPU election campaign. Well, definitely. We're still getting young members coming in and the young members are joining the union. It's the older ones and some people just feel like there's no purpose for being in the union. Really, there must be a purpose. There must be a reason to do so for anybody to get involved. What I've done, and I've been around so long and um, seen it all happen. I've seen many shop stewards be run out of the job because of their clashes with management. Many fight. We've lost many battles. I think, and I've seen many things that we've won. And I know we have to change the way we do things. We're still doing things the way... They did hundreds of years ago, but there's now we're overwhelmed with massive technology and all the resources there are put against us. And us, the average rank and file, Joe and Mary and Joe, is um, very hard to stand up against. What I've done with the guys in my workplace to encourage them just to, to get involved in the process. Now I get up before every union meeting a week before, and I, I rally them and, and fire them up to come along to the meeting and get involved. And I tell them all about, you know, the reasons, what it is to, to be a union member. And I tell them that your union membership 
is your ticket to participate in the democratic process. And I tell him also about Thomas Jefferson when he said, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. And then we were always banging on about freedom, you know, freedom this, freedom that, you know, what is freedom? You know, in that definition, the term of freedom was the definition of it was to be part, to participate in the demo, in the decision making process. If you can't participate in the making the decisions, you're no more than a slave. And that's what it's all about to be able to be in there and have some control over your destiny. We live in this democratic country. There, we're surrounded by rules and regulations to say that we're in a free democratic country, to participate in all this, to be control in our destiny, to have our vote, to have our say. But people believe that their, their vote and their say means nothing. But the only way is to get in there and have your say. Get involved, know what's going on, educate yourselves so you can make an educated and, and the right decision. So the, the people think, well, okay, they come along, they listen, they find out who's playing this game, who are the main players in the union, what decisions are being made, and they get in there and they talk about it. And sometimes, you know, this is what I wanted. Monday mornings when people came in and started talking about the footy and the golf and stuff like that, I wanted them talking about the union and what's going on and what other unions are doing. And so in the lunchroom, I hear people doing that, having those conversations. And that's really... That, that's made my day. Just, just changing that culture around. You go to a meeting which controls your whole life and your whole destiny. Your wages. It affects you, your family and your future. I've got people actually doing it and they're loving it. They're having fun doing it. They're getting involved. And they're participating. Thank you for coming on the show today. You've, you've given a really great interview and thanks for all your hard work in building a stronger active and more democratic Victorian CWU branch. Um, but before we wrap up the interview, Anthony, is there anything else you'd like to mention? Please have a look at our website, the running our campaign on union-active.org. And uh, hopefully we have a link there for our fundraiser to the GoFundMe page. <laughs> but please yeah, have a look and find out what we're all about. And please talk it up and please have a chat to your postie. And hopefully they'll get back there and talk to their comrades back at work and uh, yeah, we can get a bit of a groundswell happening and make it happen. Sounds sounds great, and we wish you the very best of luck in the in the upcoming elections and solidarity to the postal workers. Thanks once again, Anthony, for being on the show. Thanks, Chloe. Thanks for having me, and keep up the good work, Chloe. Thank you. And if you want to support Anthony and this important CWU campaign, you can make a donation at their GoFundMe page called Union Slash active.org making positive changes and check out their campaign page union-active.org if you can't make a donation you can share the fundraiser to help spread the word and Greenleft will add these links to the podcast on 3cr's website thank you all right i'll just play a quick announcement you're listening to Greenleft radio city limits brought to us by the people's committee for melbourne every wednesday at 9am City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits.
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And we'll, sorry, um, we've just probably had so much pre-recorded interviews, um, which kind of made up quite a long time, but I hope listeners have enjoyed all the content. We're just going to have a quick um, Green Left activist calendar. So on Thursday, June the 15th, there's going to be a protest, Wage Justice for Cleaners, with a cleaners um, protest um, at Melbourne Airport at 2 p.m. at the Tullamarine Airport, and this is organised by the United Workers' Union. Um, on Friday, June the 16th, there's a trivia night, fundraiser for the Shepparton um, Vizzy workers, and that's at 6.30pm at the Shrades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. On Saturday, June the 17th, there's the Big Red Book Fair, 9am to 5pm at the New International Bookshop. Um, and then there's going to be a rally, accessible tram stops, make Sydney Road accessible for all at 11am. And I just want to give a bit of a plug. If you look up um, Sam Wallman, that I'm sure a lot of our listeners at FreeCR know, if you go to his website, he just did a, re- a very good sort of comic graphic of um, the accessible trams campaign. So... I want to give, give that a bit of a plug. Um, and then on um, Friday, June the 21st, there's a public forum, No to Nuclear Submarines, organised by No Orcus Victoria, and that's going to be at 6pm at the Shades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. And then on Saturday, June the 24th, there's um, The Rock for Refugees um, at 7.30pm at the Howler, 11 Dawson Street in Brunswick, and organised by Refugee Action Collective. Um, and then on Saturday, 1st to the 2nd of July, there's the Ecosocialism 2023 Conference, A World Beyond Capitalism, at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. Go to the website, ecosocialism.org.au, to see the agenda, uh, the speakers, and, um, and also um, how you can purchase tickets. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and I'll just we'll go into getting our interview online. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. You're back listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, and we have an interview now with Yasin from the Sudanese Australian Advocacy Network. Uh, joins us now to give us an update about what has been happening in Sudan. Welcome, Yasin. Uh, hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Yasin. Green Left has been reporting on the crisis in Sudan, driven by the war between the paramilitary rapid support forces and the Sudanese armed forces. And hopefully our listeners would know about the humanitarian crisis happening in Sudan right now. But can you tell us the situation on the ground? Uh, give us a bit of an update of what's happening in Khartoum and uh, other cities as well. Yeah, uh, the situation now it is uh, very, very critical and very dangerous uh, around uh, Khartoum area and also around Darfur and uh, and Kordofan. Um, now the fighting has been extended and 
more than one million people has been displaced and uh, too many people like has been uh, displaced internally in, in different cities in, in Sudan and uh, there is more has been displaced in uh, Cairo near Cairo border and other uh, countries like uh, the Chad and Ethiopia and uh, other other borders and the situation now it is really really uh, dangerous and the fighting continue uh, in the daily daily basis. Oh, no. Um, yeah, uh, thanks, Yasin. There have been urgent appeal calls for humanitarian assistance and protection of civilians. The Australian government has been playing a terrible role in rescuing people. Um, we've heard of problems with visas and, and things like that. Can you tell us more about this and how we can put pressure on the Australian government to help get people out of the conflict zone and some of the things the Australian government can do right now to support the people of Sudan? Yeah, uh, yeah. actually, yeah, the uh, evacuation process has been uh, terminated uh, early than um, we expected. Uh, there is still people stranded in Sudan in different areas, and um, and now we are communicating with the government how we can um, improve uh, the situation in Sudan, how they can evacuate the people who are they are still in, stranded in in Sudan, and yeah, there is there is a massive issue of safety. People they can move from area to area. And uh, also, like, there is a lack of uh, uh, services in many different areas. There is no passport for people to be issued. And also, if you if you look at it from the other side, like, uh, most of the streaming has been uh, inside, inside Sudan right now. Uh, they are not able to reach even to the border. To, uh, to issue any travel doc- document or anything. We are dealing with that uh, differently. And what can you tell us about... Um, hello, my um, Yasuma James Jacob here. And I want to ask about... have have One of the things that were, had, had been happening in Sudan was there was this big kind of massive kind of protest movement pr- um, prior to kind of everything ha- um, happening. Um, but basically, have has there been any... Um, attempts from those um, those forces from below to mobilise because from the last interview um, we've heard that you know activists have in a sense stopped protesting because it is too dangerous for them and I kind of want to hear what what's the kind of update on the situation there. Oh, Yasin, are you still are you still with us? Looks like we've. Lost Yasin. Sorry about that, listeners. I think we've just been. Maybe you go to a uh, CSA. Just go play quick CSA. <laughs> Sorry about that. Must have been. Sometimes these things happen. Hello. Oh, he's. he's oh, back. sorry about that. <laughs> we just lost you for a second, Yasin. Did you hear the the question about uh, protests, the protesters um, that we just asked? Yeah, actually, what's happening right now? Most of the. Uh, uh, the groups uh, in Sudan, uh, the situa- because the situation of the war is really dangerous for people to protest, now uh, they organize themselves working in humanitarian assistance 
medical, like the transferring medical for people who need in their area, and also the helping on the shelters inside the uh, uh, the schools and the area has been people from different cities has been displaced. Yes, now they are working on this basis and different uh, uh, activities. But demonstration right now, it is it is very dangerous and they can they are not able even to uh, to walk on the streets. Tell us about the Sudanese Australian Advocacy Network, OSAN, that you're involved in. Any other grassroots organisations that people can support, um, or like if there's any upcoming protests that we can support as well. Yeah, with the Sudanese, um, uh, we, we stand right now. We are organizing different uh, activities. Uh, re- recently, we are um, joining a seminar organized here by ANU uh, about the crisis in Sudan. We have one of uh, our group speakers. He is uh, uh, going to deliver the uh, debate around the situation in Sudan. And also, we are organizing different uh, uh, appeal now we have uh, financial uh, support for 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 Sudan like uh, to provide humanitarian aid and also to provide some uh, medical medical aid for the people on the, on on the ground. We are working in different areas. Some some uh, in, in the advocacy uh, line and some of them also working with uh, with the community to provide. Uh, 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 financial support for the people in Sudan. Sounds good, Yasin. And before we wrap up this interview, is there anything else you'd like to tell us and listeners? Yeah, uh, first uh, I would like to uh, uh, to thank uh, our our colleague uh, at the Green Left, and uh, we really appreciate on. Their, their ongoing support to the Sudanese uh, revolution and, and Sudan uh, movement. And we we looking forward to work together. Thank you so much, Yasin, for joining us on the show. And we'll try to keep listeners and Green Left readers updated on this crisis in Sudan. Thank you. No worries. Thank you. All right, so we're just speaking to um, Yasan from um, the, sorry. Uh, it, uh, uh, the so it's Yasin from the Sudanese Australian Advocacy Network. We'll put a link to their website on um, our yeah, when we, as well. Yeah, when we upload the podcast, we'll give a, a bit of a link to, to, their, mm. um, to, their, to their group. All right, I'm just going to go play a quick uh, announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. 
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. So I also would, um, now we've got a bit of a breather, I thought we'll just give a bit of a plug um, for the Radiothon, um, which is actually going to be um, starting next week. And I guess I just wanted to kind of make this kind of case that, you know, keeping, um, you know, for our for our program, we were, we're we basically have been covering um, stories that you don't really hear in the kind of everyday mainstream corporate media. Like even in this program today, we spoke to uh, a, a socialist activist from India talking about the whole rise of, of the of the Modi government. Uh, we spoke to uh, a left-wing union activist with Anthony Beale, and then we also heard directly from the Sudanese community. So these are all kind of stories of, of struggle against oppression and, you know, of ordinary people fighting for a better world. And I think that is sort of the role that FreeCR has to play. Um, and also, and it's also a project that Green Left is also part of as well. And so I think, you know, if you want to, I think it's very important that, um, when the radiophone starts that you, um, make a, uh, make a good, uh, make a donation to really contribute to keeping radical radio like FreeCR, um, on the air. Yeah, we really need your support to stay independent and uh, com- community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. And Australia is actually one of the most concent- has one of the most concentrated media landscapes in the world. So your doma- donation, big or small, directly supports community-owned and community-run media free of that corporate control. And our broadcasters are ordinary people, but they're also people from the First Nations community, uh, unionists, disability activists, housing and transport activists, environmentalists, and they represent hundreds of local community campaigns and global solidarity movements. And this year's theme is, uh, Radiothon theme is Stay Tuned, Stay Radical, and our target is $275,000, so every cent counts, and 3CR was built with donations like yours. All right. Well, I'll just go play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Because we haven't had much time to play any music, I thought in the last part of our program we'll play a bit of a song. Um, I was going to play The Opener by Camp Cope.
Alright, you're just listening to The Opener by Camp Cope. Um, now I just want to give, um, I just want to highlight some, give some reports, some activist kind of news from Green Left just to close up the program. But there were actually more than a hundred people actually marched on World Environment Day in Gutter, uh, uh, Sydney. Um, Basic, um, basically demanding no new coal and gas and, and, repe- and repelling the anti-protest laws. This protest was organised by the Sydney Climate Coalition and was endorsed by more than 50 um, unions, environmental and political groups. So, yeah, that was a... That, I mean, for a protest that happened on a Monday day, I mean, having more than 400 people marching on the streets, I think is quite good, especially in terms of keeping up this mobilisation is, um, um, is quite important in terms of building the kind of client movement. Um, there was also actually, in a, there was also um, climate activists also came together in on in Geelong on June 4th for World Environment Day, and included speakers from the Greens, the Animal Justice Party, um, IPAN, Extinction Rebellion, and of course a campaign with the Australian Conservation um, Foundation. And, you know, rally organiser and MC Sarah Halfway said the world is facing a 50% chance of rising above 1.5C within five years and, you know, criticised the, the federal government's lack of serious action in the climate. And then there was a, a candlelight vigil in, organised by Rising Tide um, in Newcastle to mark World Environment Day and with more than 40,000 tonnes of coal uh, exported from Newcastle Port every day. So, yeah, that's... um. So yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a good pro- good series of kind of protests. Um, there wasn't any sort of protests that happened in Melbourne, unfortunately. But you know, I think it's good. I think we should look into seeing how to build more kind of protests like this around the country. Okay, well, you can read more Green Left Activist news on 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 um on by going on our website. But yeah, I would just like to. Thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. I also want to make a bit of a plug that, you know, if you support the work that Green Left does, consider becoming a supporter. You can become a supporter by going on greenleft.org.au forward slash support. And to become a supporter only costs up to $5 or $10 a month um, um, to keep um, to keep a radical media like Green Left and even programs like Green Left Radio on the air. And Chloe, your last points? Uh, yeah, like 3CR, Green Left is people-powered media, and as a grassroots publication, it thrives on your support. And it's, it is Radiothon at 3CR, so there are a few ways to donate online, www.3cr.org.au slash donate, and you can nominate your favorite shows, and you, or you can call on 94198377 during business hours, Monday to Friday, or you can drop by the station during business hours, and um yeah yeah uh, yeah pay pay in person at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy donate to stay tuned stay radical This brings us to the end of the show you have been listening to Friday morning breakfast with Green Left Radio brought to you by Green Left Weekly newspaper which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the farmers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.